live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sarton coming up. We're talking about we're going to need a bigger telescope. And of course, taking listener questions about all things in the universe, because that's what this show is about. We record the show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Leave a voicemail on spaceradioshow.com and you can get your question on the air. In today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about a science brain drain. But first, the news. Hey, space fans, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State. And for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all the wonderful, beautiful, miraculous things in our universe. If it's above the Earth's atmosphere, it's in this show's universe. The show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. I am not in Studio A of WCB Radio Columbus Day. No, I am at my prestigious alma mater, California Polytechnic State University of San Luis Obispo, California. That's where I got my bachelor's in physics way back in the dark ages of 2005. And I am here visiting. I just had a wonderful colloquium talking about my book, talking about my career to all the awesome students and faculty here. But I'm here. I'm doing my radio show and you get to ask me questions. Go to spaceradioshow.com for links to the live streams where you can join the space cadets. And you can leave a voice message there to get on the air. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes of show material tops, so get those calls in. Before I start taking calls, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And man, I am excited for some giant telescopes. Like, we basically don't have enough giant telescopes in our lives or in the world. Like, we just need the bigger, the better. Why? Because a bigger telescope means you can collect more light and you can magnify more so you can see dimmer things and you can see smaller things. You can see stuff that's further away. Overall, it's more awesomer the bigger you get. Now, it used to be that building a big giant telescope on the surface of the Earth wasn't that good of an idea because we have this pesky atmosphere. Yes, I know technically air is good for breathing, but that's a biology thing. When it comes to astronomy, the air is a nuisance. It's all wibbly-wobbly and wiggly and in layers and it shifts around. And this, this makes astronomy really hard. But starting about 20, 30 years ago, we developed this really cool technique called adaptive optics, where we can counter the shifts in the Earth's atmosphere by wiggling our mirrors around. So if the atmosphere shifts left, we wiggle our mirror right, and everything's awesome, and we can still get a really, really clean image. So that allowed us to start building giant telescopes on the Earth without needing to go up into space. And the next generation, we're having three giant telescopes coming online in the 2020s. And one of them just reached a major milestone. It's called the Giant Magellan Telescope. It is going up in the Chilean Andes near the Atacama Desert. And this giant telescope, when I say giant, I'm talking 80 feet across. Eight zero feet across. That is a giant telescope. That's its primary mirror. It's or its primary mirror is actually broken up into segments. Each one of them is twenty four feet across, and then it'll be in this giant pattern. To give you a sense of how precise these mirrors have to be, imagine trying to smooth out a mirror that's twenty four feet across to a level of precision of a nanometer, like one molecule of glass width. So this has to be precise across its entire 24 feet 
to within a single molecule. Like if you're off by one, if there's one extra molecule right over here, then it's, it's bad. You're not getting the full use out of your whole mirror and the whole thing's going to be messed up. Like how intense is that polishing exercise? I should just do a whole show on mirror grinding. Like, oh my gosh, it's intense. So this, the giant Magellan telescope, uh, they dug out the giant hole in the ground and now they have the money where they're going to put in like the frame, the big, the big structure, because you can imagine this is going to be a rather heavy instrument. It's going to need a lot of cement or other structural engineering things to support it. Uh, one of the challenges though, for the GMT, the giant Magellan telescope is money. You see, they don't have all the money right now. To spend it. And it's going to be over a billion bucks to make this thing. They don't have a billion bucks. So they collect money, do a thing, collect some more money, do the next thing, collect some more money, do the thing. And they're kind of sort of hoping all the money comes in at around the right time so that they can actually finish the job. That's going to be tough. That's going to be a very, very tough thing. They're targeting like full operational status in 2028. I'm really hoping they, they're able to hit that milestone. I mean, that's, that's less than 10 years away. And when you're spending a billion bucks, that's not a lot of time. So good luck, Giant Magellan Telescope. We hope you are both Giant and Magellan and a telescope. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time to answer some questions. To get us started today, we've got a question ready to go on the voicemail box. Remember, you can go to spaceradioshow.com and leave a voicemail anytime. So for that voicemail, let's go, Greg. Play the tape. Aloha, Paul. This is Thorsten from Germany, from the city of Hamburg. I'm a big fan of your show, and I have a question that bothers me a lot. We theorize that the Big Bang happened due to a quantum fluctuation and developed all that is now in our universe, even space and time. But if we say there were things happening at a quantum level before the Big Bang, well, aren't we assuming that the nothingness before the Big Bang was already following the laws of quantum mechanics? I have severe problems with that. It feels so biased and unscientific. Are there any ideas around that could ease or even counter this so it feels more correct. As it is now, I feel like Aristoteles inventing the first mover of objects to counter infinite regress that was lurking around his worldview. Thanks for your thoughts and have a good time. All right, Thorsten, I will have a good time. Thank you so much. And yes, you bring up an excellent point. When we're talking about the very early universe, we don't fully understand the earliest moments of the Big Bang. And you, some people have tossed around ideas or, you know, you theorize. I don't even want to use the word theorize. Like, even that's too strong. Like, just really just tossed around ideas that, you know, maybe our universe, our Big Bang was sparked by a quantum fluctuation. Like, there was in some sense, nothing. And then quantum mechanics did its thing and like, pop, you have a universe. And then our universe lives and, and lives its life. And, and that's no big deal because, you know, quantum fluctuations are quantum fluctuations and, and quantum fluctuations are capable of doing all sorts of random stuff, including presumably sparking the formation of an entire universe. 
Thorsten, you bring up an excellent, excellent philosophical point that, that attacks that, which is we want to say how the universe began, but in order to say how the universe began, we have to assume that the laws of physics are in place already. Like in order to have a quantum fluctuation, you need quantum mechanics to already exist. The laws of physics must be there in some sense in order for them to start doing their physics-y thing, including the physics-y thing of creating the universe. So if you're worried about it, like you seem to be, I hope you're not staying up late at night stressing out over this, Thorsten, but you're in very good company. We don't understand the early universe at all. So anything you hear about the earliest moments of the Big Bang or quote unquote before the Big Bang, these are all super, super hypothetical. These are just ideas at this stage. But you have to assume something because physics assumes the existence of something like it assumes that physical laws exist or that physics exists in order for us to you know make progress in understanding the universe so what you're saying i actually agree with like if you say oh the universe just sprang from quote unquote nothing like not even the vacuum or the void just nothing and then pop there was a universe you need some sort of physical mechanism in order for that to happen which means you already need physics in some sense to exist before you get even a physical universe so there's already a thing out there quote unquote out there that for the universe to generate from even if that thing is just the laws of physics Yes, this solves a problem of where did the Big Bang come from, but it doesn't solve the problem of the fact that the universe exists rather than not exists, which is a big philosophical question. It might someday become a scientific question. Right now, it definitely is not. It is firmly in the realm of philosophy of why is there a universe in the first place, the positive fact of the existence of the universe is something that demands an explanation. And it doesn't matter how you get around it or how much math or how much physics you wrap around it. That question still lingers. If you're going to say there were laws of physics and then we got a universe, why are there laws of physics rather than not laws of physics? Why is there quantum mechanics rather than not quantum mechanics? It's a valid question, and you know what? There are no answers, and there may not ever be an answer, and we're just going to have to be okay with that. Excellent question, Thorsten. I hope you sleep a little bit better tonight. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. This show, you know who it's brought to you by? Yourself. That's right. You brought you this show, not just in your questions, but also your support. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep the show going, and I'll see you after the break. Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got tons of spaced cadet live stream questions ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by leaving a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com 
or by following those same live streams. That's right. You too can be a space cadet. You don't have to join NASA. All you have to do is listen to a live stream of this radio show. Who knew it would be so easy? So coming up on the Space Guests, let's get started with Zoto Turtle over on Twitch asking about the Giant Magellan Telescope. How many of these mirrors will it be? So the Giant Magellan Telescope will consist of seven mirrors all in a giant array, and then they're all going to work together to bounce light off into all the various cameras to, to make these giant pictures. So it's not just one giant 80 foot diameter piece of glass it's actually seven smaller pieces which is still a big thing all right let's cut it some slack here still a giant magellan telescope but made of seven smaller mirrors shay telia over on youtube is asking how did we find out that space is a vacuum before actually traveling there we got to understand the properties of space by looking at the light that passes through it like we get light from the sun and in order to get to us, it has to pass through a lot of space, 93 million miles worth of space, and then our atmosphere. And we know what our atmosphere does to light because we can shine light through an atmosphere and we can see how different colors go in different directions, how some wavelengths are absorbed. And so we can look at the sun and through the sun, we can actually figure out what the atmosphere is made of, and then we can realize that there's not 93 million miles of air between us and the sun. Otherwise, it would be way different. That's one of the first clues that we have. The other is through the motion of the planets itself. If there was a bunch of air in space or water or, you know, pick your fluid of choice, then there'd be a lot of drag. Planets are pretty big. They're moving pretty fast. And can you imagine trying to plow through water at tens of thousands of miles per hour and you're the size of the planet Earth? That's going to stop you like pretty fast. So the only way for the planets to maintain their orbits for billions of years or even like a day is for space to be a vacuum. So lots and lots of different ways to be able to tell that space is a vacuum. Another question, Deacon Blues on YouTube asking, how can some black holes not spin? What with the conservation of angular momentum, the amount of contraction every black hole undergoes? So if you start to study black holes, if you start to go down that particular rabbit hole of the mathematics, the simplest possible description of a black hole is one that has no electric charge, is not spinning, it's just there, just a hole. And then... As you develop more advanced mathematics, you can say, okay, what if there is an electric charge? What if it is spinning? Turns out it's a different set of math. It's a harder problem, et cetera, et cetera. We think every black hole in our universe is spinning for exactly the reasons you said. As matter collapses to form a black hole, as stuff falls in, it's like an ice skater pulling their arms in and through conservation of angular momentum, you're taking all that stuff packing it into a smaller volume, that's going to make you spin faster. And so just from their very formation and then any new material falling in, black holes are going to spin like crazy. Don't Jim over on YouTube is asking, could a rubble pile type asteroid ever be like quicksand? Like if you were to try to land on it, will you sink to the core? So the problem or the fun part, depending on your point of view about asteroids, is that they have almost no gravity. Like they can barely hold themselves together, let alone someone else. You could stand on an asteroid and jump 
and that would make it fast enough for escape velocity, and you will, you know, be ejected from that asteroid. That's how weak their gravity is. So I wouldn't, even if there's a rubble pile, even if it's sandy, even if it's an asteroid made of quicksand, you don't really have to work hard to get off an asteroid. Like, it's just, it's just really lightweight, really low effort here. You can just jump and get off it. George Egerog over on YouTube is asking, does the rate of the universe expands inform us of the shape? And if yes, what does the most recent measurement say about the shape? So yes, the shape of our universe is determined by what it's made of. And what it's made of also determines how quickly our universe expands. It turns out our universe is flat. Flatter than a pancake, flatter than Kansas, flatter than a two by four. It is just flat. How flat? Present day universe is flat to let to within 1% of absolute pure flatness. That's the best our observations can do. But in order for the universe to be this flat at its present day when it's so big, it has to be way flat in its younger days, like way flatter than it is. So it can grow up to still be flat because if it was curved just a tiny, tiny bit, then as it grew up, it would just get curvier. So the early universe was flat to like one part in a million based on our best observations. That's flat. That's flat. And it's, you know what, it's going to stay flat. I don't think we're ever going to detect a curvature in the universe. Air 404, name not found over on YouTube is asking, after the inflation, how were atoms made? And then eventually stars. So atoms came about in our early universe when it was about 10 to 20 minutes old. At that time, our universe had the temperature and pressures and densities of, you know, like the inside of the sun or a nuclear reactor. You know, hot, but not impossibly hot where you couldn't possibly hope to understand it. We can actually, we know nuclear physics because we have nuclear reactors and we have nuclear bombs. And so we can understand the physics of this epoch when our universe was just 10 minutes old. I know that's a crazy, crazy thing to say, but it's true. And that's when all the hydrogen, helium, and a little bit of lithium, but nobody cares about lithium, was born just in that tiny, tiny 10 to 20 minute window. Larry Beckham on YouTube asking, is anything in the universe not spinning? Um, some giant things like galaxy clusters don't really have an appreciable spin. Like you might see a spin here and there, but definitely the whole entire universe is not spinning. By the way, FYI, if our universe was spinning, then time travel into the past would be possible. You don't believe it? Well, it's just, just the way the math works out. It's pretty funny. Andy Cowley over on YouTube is asking, do you think we'll ever get a telescope on the moon? Moon would be a great place for observing. Why? Because you can have a big giant mirror like you, just like you do on the Earth, and there's none of that pesky air. Ugh, I hate air. I mean, yes, I breathe in. It keeps me alive, but it makes astronomy so hard, like I said at the beginning. It just frustrates me, okay? But a moon seems like a good idea. Trouble is, moon doesn't have a lot of glass. So you got to make the glass, either make it on Earth and ship it to the moon, which you might, if you're going to do that, you might as well just keep it in space and make a giant, awesome space telescope. Or you got to build it on the moon, which means you need all the manufacturing equipment on the moon, which means you need like civilization on the moon. So will we have telescopes on the moon? For sure. Someday, I, you know, most likely, whatever, but probably not going to be the first thing we're going to do 
on the moon. Deacon Blues on YouTube, and I'll wrap with this, is asking if there is a difference between spinning and rotating. Not in my book. They are synonyms. Thank you so much for all those awesome questions. I'm almost out of time to dance space radio, but before we go, it's time for the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter and you're listening to space radio. And this is the blue shift my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. You would think that of the people that go into science, let's say there's a group of a hundred people that decide to pursue careers in science. There's a lot of challenges. It's not an easy undergraduate major. It's not an easy career path. You know, grad school's hard. Postdocs are hard. Faculty positions are hard to come by. You would think that at the end of it, you know, 10, 15 years later, there's one or two people left out of the hundred that are still pursuing it as a career. You might assume that these are the best and brightest. Like these are the most hardworking. These are the most diligent. These are the most perseverant. These are the smartest. Like these are going to be the cream of the crop when it comes to humanity. And these are going to be the ones that are going to lead science because they are the best because they survived the trials. Not so much, especially nowadays. Because nowadays, science is becoming more and more reliant on computers and algorithms and tons of data. Like the giant Magellan telescope is going like it's going to like blast out like what a petabyte of data a night or something ridiculous like that. Like that's a major computer science problem. So how do you solve this problem? Why will you have to solve this problem by having really smart data scientists, scientists who are interested in working with large volumes of data? And there are plenty of people that get excited by that, want that to be their career, love it. They don't want to do it in the sciences necessarily. So they might pick astronomy or physics or biology as a major in college or grad school because they think it's cool and fun, but they're not interested in a long-term career in it. Like they'll, they'll, they'll do the data science stuff, they'll do the programming, they'll do the hard work, they'll get a PhD, and then they'll go to like Silicon Valley or New York and have a really fun, exciting, challenging, rewarding career that's also lucrative, much more lucrative than the academic track, that's for sure. And then what does that leave us? That leaves the people that ain't so good at this whole computer science, data science, algorithm development thing, but that's exactly the skills that science needs nowadays, but we're not getting the best and brightest ending up in our faculty positions, so... Is that going to be a long-term problem? Is this ultimately going to slow down the pace of science? I think, yeah. And I think it's something we really need to think about. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by You Know Who... Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter and keep this show going. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, Dan Michalka for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCB Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern. You can leave a voicemail. Drop us a line. Spaceradioshow.com. You can also follow along with the space cadets on the live streams. On YouTube and Twitch, go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember... Science is for sharing and transmission.